Welcome back to the AEC Disruptors Podcast, your platform to help push the AEC industry forward. I'm your host, Christopher Riddell, and joining me today is my co-host, Jackson Sinsat. Welcome, Jackson. Chris, I just want to say that I appreciate that you say my last name correctly. <laughs> you know, I, I wondered the whole time if I was saying this right. Well, now you, now you have confirmation. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because I'll be honest, every time I go to introduce you, I'm like, how else could you say this name? I only see Sunset. Yeah, but- well, the middle schoolers back in the day, whenever I was a kid, saw Sunset. <laughs> and actually, um, you know, a little bit of a personal story here for the AEC disruptors. I'm getting married in December, and you know, the kids these days, they have wedding hashtags, and ours is actually riding off into the Sunset. That is pretty clever. I actually like that. Yeah, we didn't. Crap, we maybe we did. I don't remember. Riding into the sunset. I like that. Cool. You know, so um, we actually did do an interview here. And it was, uh, I really enjoyed this one. It was with uh, Sam Coates. He's the senior research strategist at uh, Callison TRKL. But uh, Sam has had a pretty impressive um, work work experience already. I was, uh, I really enjoyed talking to him. He was way smarter than me and made me feel uncomfortable. Um, but, you know, a little bit about Sam, he, uh, you know, he talked a little bit about how he helped run a nonprofit and it was really focused on getting inner city, uh, inner city kids involved in the design profession. He worked at Gensler in the research team and then he uh, obviously now he has his new role but what we really wanted to talk about is uh how you know the importance of research and how it impacts the innovation process and um you know we we touched on different nuggets throughout throughout the talk i know you got a chance jackson to listen in uh what'd you think of uh of sam um So I echo everything that you just said. Um, He's obviously a very intelligent, impressive individual. Um, I know that your careers um, are very similar, or at least the paths that were taken. Um, You both, you know, came into the industry at probably the most difficult time in modern history to do so. Outside maybe now. mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) True. Um, But, um, you know, Though, as those in the South say, um, he's definitely good people. Um, so he took that adversity and turned it into helping people by running a nonprofit. And that was one of the things that I was most impressed by from the conversation. I, uh, you know, and we touched on things like um, how research can impact ROI and, you know, how critical it is. But some of the things that he talked about that I I took away was when he kept talking about disruptions in his environment and how he handled them. You know, we we are probably of similar of age, him and I, and so we both graduated at a similar time and went into the workforce at a similar time. And in my, I never, even though I was dealing with those similar things, I never thought of it in terms of how I took the disruption in my environment and I, you know, did something great with it. So that was a huge takeaway for me is uh, just his approach to to how he looked at those things. Right, and um, I know this is getting a little bit into the pod, but you know, the thing that struck me most that um, Sam said was 
um, each industry has to disrupt themselves rather than someone else doing it for them. So when you have someone else disrupt your industry, you know what's going to happen? You're not going to like the way they did it. So if you're not going to um, take the initiative to disrupt your own industry to make it better, um, then it falls out of your hands as far as, um, you know, how it's done. And um, it, it's not going to be a reflection of how work is really done in your industry. He, uh, it was a great talk and, you know, research and we kind of talked about, you would think that it is a no brainer that it is part of an innovation process. But I think a lot of times we forget that it is pretty critical. And sometimes that research doesn't get you anywhere other than you just know what way not to do something. Um, so no, it was a great talk. He was a perfect person to have on the AEC disruptors. So I hope everyone gets a chance to listen to it and uh, check back for more. Yeah, so I'm, I'm Sam Coates, obviously. Um, I guess I'll start with current and then I'll kind of work back. I'm currently the um, senior strategist, uh, senior research strategist with the Calista RTKL uh, research division there. Um, and I'll, I'll kind of like work back a little bit and, and, you know, it's funny in preparing for this discussion, it really forced me to think like, what is, what, what are my like bullet points, right? What are, what's my ethos? And, um, you know, I think I landed on, um, coming out of architecture school, I kind of had an oh crap moment where I, I realized I didn't want to be an architect, but yeah. now I didn't know what that meant. So, um, it's for sure been a nonlinear path, but, um, I think that, you know, these, these nonlinear and, and um, winding career paths are often the most interesting and mm -hmm. most exciting. Um, just in general, kind of what I'm drawn to, uh, which, is, which has kind of drawn me off of this architecture path and more into strategy, innovation, and research uh, within the AEC industry, is that I, I really enjoy working with people uh, and I really enjoy um, exploring those kind of edge strategies of, of our industry. So, um, you know, very early on, I discovered I'm, I'm probably not the best designer out there, but but I, where I lack in that, I make up for in um, really wanting to better our industry. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of my primary goals is to really increase the rate of change that, that the design industry sees. Um, you know, I would like us to disrupt ourselves before we are disrupted by, by the outside world. Absolutely. And we've talked on other ones that how this industry is primed for disruption because of, you know, any market leaders, there's no like staying power. There's nothing that's keeping them there. And uh, so I think that's a great, great concept. Yeah. I, I think that um, some of the, dis and some of the kind of disruption areas that I've focused my career on um one is in obviously design technology, which which you and, and this group are familiar with. Um, I you know I'm really interested. I'm I myself am not a design technologist, but I enjoy working with people like Robert and others mm -hmm. um, who are the experts and really pulling out. Okay, what is what does this mean for our business? What does this mean from an innovation and um, research standpoint? So. Um, yeah, that's kind of the big themes. Um, I guess I could go into a little bit of history if that's helpful. Yeah, you know, I think one one reason or one thing that I immediately um, connected with you when we talked last was when you said that you realized, you know, 
you know, your design, where your design skills were. Cause is that was like, what you said is stuff that I've said before. It's like, all right, <laughs> I know I'm not like the most talented designer. Um, in fact, my wife is in architecture too, and she's a talented designer. And my creativity came out other ways, similar to the way you've described how your creativity comes out and where you look at. And so I think that's where I immediately was like, oh, I get it. Cause I feel the exact same way. And, and in a way it's like, we both started into the same architecture profession and then ours has weaved and turned into similar, but different roles. And I think that's, what's really compelling about not just our discussion, but like the reason for this podcast is there is no one linear path in architecture and for us to all be able to um, thrive in the future, we have to be able to have people like you in discussions like this. Um, you know, I think a couple things that just out of curiosity, I wanted to ask, uh, and it was specifically about, I think your time at Gensler. So I know you were at Gensler and then maybe that's where you came across with Robert. Um, and he wanted me to talk to you about, and we'll see where this goes, but he wanted me to ask you about some events you had put on in DC. Um, I don't know if that resonates with you at all, but, um, and I don't know if it was in terms of the research you all were doing, but, you know, why don't you talk a little bit about your experiences there? Because I feel like, or I would assume that some of the stuff you've learned there, you've started to take and carry on with you throughout your journey here. Sure. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny. I think, uh, before Gensler was really the time, I think we had talked about, um, much of, much of the changes in my career have been um, due to disruptions in my environment. Um, you know, you could look at those disruptions as, for me, it was the economic crash of 2008 um, that really messed with my plans to be to be a designer. I went to an architecture school that required you to work um, as a part of your education, and um, that forced me very early on into a, um, a career that was, I actually ended up running a nonprofit program with a staff of, a staff of 35, um, a lot of which were, were high school students, some of which were staff that were older than I was. So very early on, that was a kind of a jarring thing, but I, I bring that up because when I was um, moving to DC, my husband was offered a job here, and again, another kind of um, disruption in my environment, I took that opportunity to say, I'm you know, I'm going to meet with uh, architecture firms in traditional design roles for those types of jobs, but I'm also going to take meetings with places like Gensler, um, where they had a really kind of interesting position that I had never heard of that was a, a talent strategy, a global talent strategy manager with their um, kind of their people mm -hmm. uh, operations department. And so I, I took that job because I think... Um, it was, it was ambiguous. It was interesting. It was messy. Uh, you know, people are not a, you can't fit people into a box. And I think that's what attracted me to places like Gensler that were, were, you know, industry leaders and really focused on these edge strategies that, that a lot of other industries, that a lot of other firms weren't thinking about. Um, and you brought up the events. Um, I think being in that type of role um, as a strategist working, you know, directly with the CEO and, and office directors across the firm affords you the opportunity um, to really follow your passion projects uh, mm -hmm. as long as you can make a business case for them. And that particular um, project was, was, a, was a opportunity that myself and two other um, recent people that started at Gensler had found that there was a lot of business development activities going on at Gensler uh, and other architecture firms, um, but they were primarily focused around more senior staff. 
-hmm. And so we put our heads together to say, well, what type of program would kind of a really meaningful business development program for emerging staff look like at Gensler? And that's where we kind of landed on this idea of, well, let's, you know, we're young, we're, we're learning. We can ask the sort of audacious, crazy questions. Let's put together a program around that. And uh, we ended up calling it the Gensler Ambassadors uh, Program. And essentially we, we brought together like, uh, like-minded, like-positioned folks across both the design industry, but also the construction, mm-hmm. um, the technology, the public policy groups. And we just uh, had these moderated panel discussions. Um, I think that's still going on actually in probably four or five years later, it's developed into the, the mayor's office has shown up. We've gotten media attention from um, BizNow and other media outlets. And it's just bubbled into this really interesting platform for people to um, meet one another uh, in a really meaningful way to have conversations about what the future of design looks like. I think it's, uh, I think it's really cool. And, you know, when we first met, I brought up even the thought of the podcast was to be able to serve as a platform and help push the industry forward. And, and I, I appreciate uh, events like that. We're starting to pull people together and really start to, you know, look at what are the current things we're, we're running into, you know, where are we headed? What are some of these future themes and, uh, and then I appreciate, you know, your type of role or your type of position on how we're getting there. You know, I never thought of the, the, con- the idea of how your, your environment is being disrupted and how that can change your career path. Because from the sounds of it, you and I um, are probably similar in age because those same forces have changed us. And I never looked at it as the, oh, my environment disrupted me. It was just, oh, I had to you know, get a, get something else. Like I have a degree on my wall that honestly, if there was no uh, great recession, I wouldn't have gotten. And it was really just because like, Oh crap, what do I do? Um, so, you know, clearly, so now, you know, you've gone through you and Gensler, you kind of were in this uh, operations um, talent type of role. And now it seems to like it's evolved more into a, a heavier focus on the research side. Sure. Um, what kind of got you there? And then what I'd love to do is from there, we can really talk about some of these things and really just the importance of research. I mean, you know, it seems so obvious, but I don't know if we really think about it in that sense. Yeah. And I think that, um, again, kind of another disruption in my environment that after the kind of global um, talent strategy role, uh, you know, it was a bit of a disruption in, in my own um, kind of heart where it was, I, I wanted a career change. I wanted to get, um, I wanted to get closer back to the practice. I feel like I had gotten away from it because I wasn't doing client work. Um, but, but I did not want to necessarily just go full-time kind of client um, architecture work either. Um, and thankfully a big enough and um, sophisticated enough organization like Gensler has the opportunity um, to move laterally across the organization. And so I had expressed, you know, I really want to do this type of work. I don't know what it looks like. And I had to have the conversation for about a year and it took that much time for us to figure out what was the best next move for me. And it ended up being um, creating a role uh, within the Gensler Research Institute team, which is, was a small, small team of about five at that time. Um, that, that reported directly to our CEO and was really tasked with um, being the research and development department of Gensler and expanding knowledge. And um, 
you know, that role is really focused on not necessarily being a researcher, but, but bringing my strategy and people strategy um, and learning, corporate learning focus to the research department to say, okay, this is great that we've, that we've uncovered this new knowledge, but what do we do with it? Uh, and that was really where I focused on let's, let's um, and forgive the buzzword, let's unpack <laughs> this research uh, and let's really uh, make sure that our staff and our clients understand it and understand the implications of how it's going to shift and, and how it could change their business and the way they work. We, uh, I don't know what another word front pack is, but I feel like we have to find one. <laughs> yes. That, that sounds like a great research opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, that's funny. I, uh, so, okay. Because there is something to be said. I mean, in a way it's like, I've had a past discussion about data. Like we collect all this data. So now what? Um, and I guess that same sentiment could be applied to research. So mm-hmm. what is some of the stuff you started to, or what is it you started to instill in that, okay, we've done the research, you know, I've done some reading and now what do I do? Like, what have you learned or what, what did you try to put out there to, to really take it more from just research and make them tangible things? I think it was, um, I think it was a bit of a mindset shift and this is where, you know, the, the um, argument for truly diverse teams comes into play where I was the only um, architect um, on that team. Everybody else was, the smartest people I've ever met, you know, it's, and that's, that's the best position to be in Um, researchers, um, social scientists, uh, writers, designers. Um, And I think what, what I had to do was really take this as an opportunity to say, this is, um, this is a new role um, that's not not existed. So let's treat it as a change management project. Um, So I went in saying, this is like a consulting activity. Um, I'm going to set up interviews with the top, um, kind of leaders across the firm and ask them, what would it take for you to apply this research on every project you do moving forward? And I think just being humble and asking those questions um, was, a, was a critical component. And I think what came out of that to your point or your question was um, that we really needed to um, have a cultural culture change within the organization, um, a culture change that said, it's, you know, it's okay to take time to um, digest this research and understand what it means to your daily lives. Um, a culture change that, that also said, you know, we're going to develop materials and training opportunities for people to understand what we're, what we're doing here and what we've discovered. Um, so I think that, that, um, you know, it's important to know that not every solution requires, not every problem requires the same solution. It's, you know, you've got to take the time and ask the questions uh, before you, before you dive in and start um, changing things. The uh, it's interesting, the focus on the culture, because it seems like culture really culture can impact just about everything we do. I mean, I know when we started on a, our innovation, innovation journey, there was a lot of focus on culture because no matter how many great platforms I find or how many, you know, great ideas you or I come up with. If we don't have that culture that embraces whatever it is we're trying to achieve, it's just not going to work. And so, you know, when you're, and especially when it comes to research, I would guess, because with research, it seems like there could be a whole lot of effort put into something that at the end of the day doesn't materialize in anything tangible other than 
we now know we should not perhaps pursue this, or now we know we should pursue and do more research. So how have you been able to balance or how, how did you attempt to balance the change of a culture when at the end of the day, my research may not have anything very tangible and I'm constantly being asked about my ROI and, you know, how is this making us money or not making us money? Yeah. I, and I think that's actually some of the, um, some of the opportunities that I'm dealing with now um, in helping to start this new research department that didn't exist before at Calison RTKL. It's an organization um, that's full of, that's full of whip smart people and curious people, but, but never before has there been a formal platform to conduct research on. Um, and I think it's to say like, it's a research and innovation. It's a messy process. Um, and I think that um, it's still, it's still a game, but it's a game played by, by different outcomes and, and slightly different rules. Um, I think it's important to be um, rigorous about how you structure uh, a research program or sprint or whatever it is. Um, and you've got to, you've got to take time to organize it smartly and in ways that also aligns you know, not only with the goals of research and, and having sound um, research methods, but also it aligns with the business uh, mm -hmm. and, and the CEO's objectives um, and the shareholders' objectives. So you've got to take into account all of the stakeholders um, and develop a platform that um, has rigor, um, but you're able to shift, you're able to fail quickly and shift that um, focus if need be. Um, how did you go about, um, maybe even here, how have you gone about identifying your teams? I mean, I, I recognize the need for sort of that cross-functional, so you get that differing thought or diversity of thought. Do you have like dedicated teams that focus on certain themes or do you have, um, is it you have a theme and then the research can come to that? I mean, how do you approach or how have you started to approach that? So I think um, that maybe the best way to talk about that is through, um, the way you actually, the way I've seen, you know, there's no one right way necessarily, but the way I've seen success in, in setting up a research um, group is that you've got to have multiple, multiple streams with multiple speeds of, of innovation happening or mm -hmm. research happening. So, you know, you can um, have a, a stream that you fail fast, fail often. Um, that's often secondary research. So in that case, you know, you, you really want to engage a network of internal folks or external collaborators that are more on a volunteer basis. Um, people that, um, you know, people that are wanting to research a topic that's interesting to them, you want to be able to provide them the platform to do that. And then assume that, you know, assume that 90% of those things aren't going to go anywhere necessarily, but that 10% then build into this secondary stream, which is the kind of long haul stream, which is we're going to, we're going to invest and develop new research. Mm -hmm. um, it's going to be, you know, it's probably going to be pricey to do, but it's going to have um, long, long-term impacts for our uh, firm and our industry. And so I think setting up that kind of team is, is more the full-time folks that you want to invest in. And that's the team that um, arguably should be very diverse, you know, to, to be made up of um, maybe, you know, architects, but also social scientists and uh, researchers and writers and, um, you know, people that are really great at facilitating ideas. So I think it's important to think of, think of themes and think of things in different streams and um, how you staff those. Yeah. 
The, uh, do you, so have you noticed, have you had the greatest success with say an, an R and D group when they were presented, you know, a task or a problem to research, or is it kind of been a mixed bag in terms of you have the ability and maybe this just goes through the streams to have these big nets, but do you still want some level of focus? So it is marching towards that overall goal. Yeah, I think it's it's the way in which you curate the the process, right? So if you have an open call for entries or, or research within an organization, um, it's up to you to clearly define what the business objectives of the firm are so that people can um, submit ideas that they're passionate about and knowledgeable about that that fit into those, those buckets or work streams. Um, so there is work to be done on the back end to say, um, you know, we're going to do our due diligence ahead of doing this, you know, call for research um, that understands what the needs of the industry are and, and what the needs of the um, firm are with, with regards to a research agenda. Have you, because um, obviously I would, you know, executive buy-in is critical for these type things. Is this, have you often been met with, um, maybe they, the executives had already brought, bought in when they brought you the idea or has there been times where you had to sort of help persuade or pursue like, hey, this, this is why research is important, um, you know, or, and maybe if you had an experience, like what, what do we do when we recognize that research is important? How do we get that buy-in at the top? I, I think it has to, I think it has to start with it. Um, you know, I, I don't think it's the best approach to say, we're going to try to force this. <laughs> it's got to happen naturally. And, and thankfully, um, you know, when I was at Gensler, um, the CEO there, <clears throat> uh, Diane Hoskins, that was primarily overseeing our group, um, has been a long advocate um, for research. And it was the reason that division um, had been around for 10 years before I started with them. And same now uh, with, our, with our CEO, Kelly, um, Farrell, who's who's fairly kind of new in that role, um, she and other senior leadership in the organization put this as a flag or an agenda um, as something that they needed to develop. And so um, we were brought in as a part of that. And I think um, I think that an organization needs to be ready to invest because it is a long-term investment um, that you've got to give you know some leeway to for a couple of years before you you might see any. Um, these kind of mega aha um, projects. Um, I think that's a, that's a great nugget because I do think, and like we live in a world of instant gratification, right? Um, sure. Just in general, like how many times does somebody count their likes or comments? Uh, and so it, we have to be able to find ways to temper those expectations with stuff like R and D, which may be a slow initial go. Um, or in creating an innovation process, because if you expect um, media returns on any of this stuff, then you almost should not even pursue it. Um, because it really is that, that long term initiative that I feel like it's one of those that you're like pushing a cart up a hill, and you're pushing it and then you finally reach the peak at some point and then all of a sudden it's just smooth sailing to some degree. Um, and so I think that's, I think that's pretty great. The AEC Disruptors podcast is brought to you by Applied Software. With solutions for the modern project, Applied Software is on a mission to transform industries by empowering clients and champion innovation with real-world expert consultants. 
Their comprehensive array of solutions for the AEC, MEP, and manufacturing has a singular focus, helping you achieve higher performance. With software, training, support, consulting, and custom development, Applied Software has you covered. Visit asti.com and let them know we sent you. I want to change gears a little bit just because, just because, um, you mentioned the nonprofit and it's, you know, maybe it has some relation or not, but I'm curious, like what was, what was the nonprofit and then kind of what was the reason for, for pursuing that? I know like you had your disruptions in your environment, but, um, you know, tell me a little bit about that some. Yeah. So the, the nonprofit was actually called uh, youth build USA, which is, um, I didn't know this before starting. It's one of the largest um, workforce development um, nonprofits in the U.S. Um, they do tremendous work, primarily focused on, they have lots of different sectors with, within the organization, but um, they have sites uh, in all 50 states and, and several internationally now, focused on um, how do we get um, folks that have been in the juvenile justice system, you know, they may have um, you know, made some bad decisions earlier on their life. How do we give them an opportunity to uh, engage in meaningful careers? And so their focus is really around um, the construction trades industry, uh, getting people certified, trained, um, and, and back into the workforce and, and kind of being contributing members of society. And mm -hmm. Uh, the organization that that I was particularly running was kind of a new one for them, which was called the Designery, uh, which was focused on how do we um, do two things. One is how do we engage inner city youth that need that need to not be on the streets, you know, during the summer months and after school. Um, that with uh, how do we open design up as a career opportunity for inner city youth. Um, so that focus was what drew me to it originally to say, um, you know, I got in, it, it kind of made me question early in my career. I got into this field. Um, I had a lot of people helping me. Um, how do, how do we create systematic change in our industry to um, lift others up so that this is a career option for them as well? Um, so that was the kind of like initial draw, but I think what, what had happened was, being, I was young, I was, you know, my early twenties and, um, working for this nonprofit afforded me the opportunity to run a small business, yeah. uh, and run, run a staff and work with difficult people, you know, tr trying to work with teenagers, uh, angsty teenagers, uh, after school and in the summer was not an easy task, but, um, all to say that I think working for a nonprofit like that early on in your career um, is a really great way to explore explore different avenues mm -hmm. um, to gain leadership opportunities very quickly because they need the help and and you're there to give it. So, do you uh, do you still do anything with them or do you have any connection with them at all? I still have a lot of connection, just keeping in touch. But no, I I wish I had more. You know, I think that. Um, the other big organization I see us as big, big firms, both at Gensler and Cal Smart DKL, engaging with is uh, ACE uh, mentorship mentor program. Um, so I think that there are lots of other organizations out there, but I think, you know, that's also to say I spent, I spent some time when I was at Gensler running the, um, the diversity scholarship program, which was bringing, um, bringing minority, um, groups into the field of design within within the US internationally. 
And I think that um, these big firms are, especially now in the last few months, recognizing that they have a real opportunity to change um, how we how we hire and how we bring people into the industry. And I think um, that's been a kind of another point in my career where, again, it's a passion project, but it's something that you you can you can help contribute towards in a professional way uh, as a part of your role. Um, yeah, you know, it's n- now now of all times, it's even more telling. But I, I get so excited when I see some of these large, and I guess Gensler too, some of these large firms hiring um, even women at, or as their CEOs. Um, yep. I've worked and, for two the two architecture firms I've worked for have been have been run by women, and I think uh it's no it's it's a noticeable positive difference um it's great i yeah i i could i can imagine because i um yeah because the industry in fact even for like the podcast i would it's like we need to get more women we need to talk more women because um you know i i commend you for the you're working with a nonprofit. Because you and I probably, and similar but different, have obviously been afforded the opportunities mm-hmm. that others don't get to. I um, grew up in Metro Atlanta. I went to Georgia Tech, and I, you know, came out and got a job in architecture, even though the, it wasn't the easiest time, and uh, just kind of, you know, didn't really recognize that it was that it wasn't easy, but it it was that easy for us. Um, and so I do appreciate the that there are organizations that are really focusing on because you hear about like the inner city doing stuff with inner city kids, but I don't think you hear a ton about how it relates to our profession Um, and giving them those and maybe for the construction too. But yeah, I, I think that's great. I, um, I always have a soft spot for that type stuff um, just for different things, my background. Um, I mean, the other, the other thing I'll just throw in there is that, um, as I was thinking about our conversation today, I was also thinking, I mean, this plays into research and innovation that we as an industry, especially design, um, you know, I don't know quite as much about uh, construction engineering, but we need to be better about looking uh, outside of our industries and and contextualizing uh, lessons learned to bring in. I think that's one of the, one of the critical things with, with these like research and, and, um, R&D departments and innovation groups is that we're a little late to the game in the design industry. And um, we don't always do the best job at stopping and, and looking at the technology industry or looking at the healthcare industry and saying, you know, they've been doing this for a while. Let's try to learn from them um, and, and, and contextualize it and make it work for us. Absolutely. I've, um, I was doing some research. I mean, this is probably no surprise to you, but in general, the AEC industry is an extreme laggard in technology adoption. And because of like, you know, I've always was involved with, you know, when I was in school, as soon as I had the chance to do some BIM modeling, I I jumped on it. And as soon as I had the chance to do a rendering, I jumped on it. So like when I hear that we were slow to adopt, I was a little surprised until I actually took a step back and then productivity with all these new tools and everything. Productivity has more or less been pretty stagnant. But you look to things like, you know, industrial construction is something that has been around for a while and maybe it's going to actually really get going. But you look to like manufacturing and what they do in manufacturing and so much of what they do can come and trickle into our industry. And, um, you know, like you said, the, the healthcare and all the different industries that I don't know if we ever really think to like see what everyone else is doing or we don't know how to apply it. 
-hmm. And maybe that's where, you know, people like you, like, how do we apply this research? Like I could look and see that, oh yeah, you know, in this manufacturing plant, they're using uh, image recognition software to detect X, Y, and Z. How could I apply that to a construction site? You know, so how, how do you, with all this data, all this research, how do you know where to focus to actually apply it? Yeah, I think, and I think that um, it might be worthwhile to kind of pause and even set some definitions to terms here. I think that research and innovation often are used interchangeably, um, but I think as, as, as a um, group or an industry that is kind of catching up, I think it's important for us to define what these terms mean for us. And so, you know, I often define research as it's, it's a process, it's a creative and systematic process um, that's undertaken to increase new knowledge. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this could be new knowledge um, for our industry. To your point, it doesn't have to be new knowledge that no one in the world has ever thought about, but it's new knowledge that says, you know, we've, we've refined and tweaked this um, scanning process uh, to fit our process. And that's new knowledge for us. And then yep. I think the innovation process is actually the application of that new knowledge to create a better solution. So I think Absolutely. that's where, and that's where I've spent most of my career and, and where my interest lies is between this Venn diagram of, of research and innovation um, kind of metaphorically speaking, that's where the rubber hits the road. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's where the application of, of knowledge becomes so critically important. Um, and then there's obviously the the kind of corporate innovation groups, and I think this is where we can learn from from outside industries. These are the groups that um, are tasked with bringing these th these high risk ideas uh, to market within large organizations. And um, you know, to your question, I think that where you focus is is a rigorous um, process and symbiotic relationship between those between all of those parties. So, mm -hmm. you know, you've got to have a work stream that accounts for bringing in a lot of new research, assuming that most of that is not going to pay off into new innovation, but then having a process by which you can flag to say, oh, this is a great idea. Let's move this into the kind of innovation process. And then, oh, this is working. We've asked the right questions customers are actually want this and, and want to pay for it, you know, here's how we're going to accelerate it into a new product. So I think it's just, again, about building, uh, strategically building a process that, that can account for um, quote unquote wastage uh, of ideas or, or things that maybe don't um, build into a new product. Yep. The, uh, as we, as we start to wrap up a little bit, one, I, uh, I, I've enjoyed, I've enjoyed hearing about your background and then how you have attributed to, you know, how the, how disruptions would impact you. But in a way it's like, you're not allowing that to, to define you. You then move past that and you take advantage. So then you mentioned the very beginning, you said, Hey, the industry in a way we need to disrupt ourselves before we get disrupted. Um, you know, is there anything specifically that, you know, you're looking at or, you know, when you say that, do you have anything in mind that, you know, if people are listening and they're saying, yeah, I recognize that, you know, we're primed for disruption, but I don't know what that means. You know, what are some of the things that we could start to look at or think about that we could actually have some level of impact on? Yeah, I think I think um, one that comes to mind, and, and we spent a lot of our time while I was at Gensler thinking about um, 
you know, the commoditization of, of design services. Uh, we, you know, at the time, a couple of years ago, we had WeWork um, kind of in our backyard, metaphorically speaking. And um, the organizations that can provide design solutions that are wrapped, that are wrapped in construction services and leasing services and um, um, mega loads of data to tell you when and how much coffee you need to order for an office. Um, I think that these are disruptions that are that are happening to us as an industry, but I think that this is our opportunity to um, redefine what we actually do uh, mm-hmm. and the services that we provide. So I think the places where I'm thinking about um, you know, from a, from a, and, and this is maybe a little bit more on the innovation side, but um, places that we're researching is what is our value? What is the value that design brings? Um, how can we start to quantify that value when it comes to our economic, social, um, and design kind of impact on a, on a city? So mm-hmm. um, these are some of the places where we're spending our time, I think as an industry right now, researching is to say, yeah, we, we built this new we built this new community center 10 years ago or this new residential tower um, several years ago. What has been the impact of that and how do we quantify that? And how do we tell that story um, to the world rather than, you know, we can design a building for you and then we'll walk away from it. Um, So I think it's about building, um, building in these, these kind of like life cycle conversations with our clients. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Because, it, it kind of in a way goes back to a lot of the conversations that we've had in the past and, you know, we're collecting this data, we're collecting this research. Um, and in a way as, as architects or in the design profession, we're, we're coming in and we're designing your building and we're handing it off to you. And then we go on and do the next and we just pile on more data and we're not really serving as like, um, advisors throughout like you know i want to be your partner throughout this whole life cycle of this project and i want to look at things like do you even need to build another building do you need to renovate or design this or what do we need to do over here um and one thing that because you know i mentioned that the reason at least one of the things i came across is why our industry is prime for disruption is because there is no like patentable ip that keeps people at the top there's nothing really other than just big, you know, Gensler's just big and they have reputation or Perkins and Will is just big and they have reputation. Um, but as a result, other people outside the industry, specifically in say construction, what they're doing is they're focusing on what we keep hearing is a problem is productivity. You know, we need to increase our productivity because of the amount of buildings we have to build. And so those smaller firms, the Kateras and all the different companies that are Maybe they're tech companies. They're focusing on productivity and how I'm going to come in and disrupt that. And one of the things that I was reading about is how we can even use really the transfer of knowledge. Knowledge management internally can become our competitive advantage. And while we focus or while they focus on how to be more productive, we focus on those additional services and those additional things that we actually can do. Because what would happen is when they come in, to disrupt and they just want to be able to be super productive and it's like IPD on steroids. Um, we have already proved that we have value elsewhere. And so I think that's a, it's a great comment and really something that I don't know if a lot of us take the time, to even take a step back and ask like, what do we do 
are we okay doing this? And do we want to even continue practicing in this way? Or otherwise, I feel like, especially on the design side, we'll be like just another subcontractor, you know, that just you, you get purchased if, if it's not all, all automated, right? I mean, there are certain things that that's going to do away. So I think the research and looking to the future and pulling in other industries is so critical um, really for us to survive as an industry and then ultimately thrive past that. Yeah, I think a couple points there is um, we've also, as a, as, a, as a broad industry, we've got to decide what we're okay um, having disrupted and, and what we're, we're kind of not okay. <laughs> um, you know, I think that some of the tools you mentioned, um, you know, like automated test fits come to mind, um, using AI to um, develop quick schematic drawings. We've got to, we've got, you know, me personally, I think we've got to be okay with that. And we've got to utilize those as tools, much like we did with BIM. Mm -hmm. um, but then to your point, we've got to understand what are the new business models that we maybe need to research and, um, and do our due diligence on and test with our clients to say, you know, is a, is a subscription-based design model actually the better way to interface with our clients? Um, there are, and, and not every firm needs to be the same. Obviously we've got to meet market demands for single family residential as well. Um, but if that, if that subscription model is, is of interest for a portion of the industry, we've also got to invest um, and, and spend a lot more time on um, data management because it's just something that at, at all the firms I've been at, it is the kind of um, thorn in our side in terms of we've got a lot of it and and we're not quite sure what to do with it and we're still fumbling to figure it out. Um, and I, I talked a little bit earlier about contextualizing from other industries. There's so much to be learned um, from you know, the shared transportation uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, world that we can learn about how did that happen? How did that go down for them? And, and what can we learn from that? It's always those crazy things you hear about, um, you know, like the largest uh, taxi services has no cars and the largest um, hotel service, Airbnb has no properties. Um, and I think what we'll see, because obviously we're in a really tough time right now, some of those like those commonplace companies that you and I use all the time, like I think Airbnb was one of them, um, they all came about during the last recession. And there's nothing like a recession that drives the like critical mass of change. Like I have to do something different. And who knows, we might see that in the, the AEC industry because in a way, it's like we can't sustain the way we've been practicing. Um, not in the long haul, short of just having like five or six large companies that do most of the work. Um, so I'll be curious to see what comes out of this, this time um, because of what interesting things came out of the last one. Um, and for pe unrelated, but for people like you and I, this is like another huge recession that we're like in the beginning of our careers dealing with. So that's always fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think you touched on it where it's, you know, people are our product. Um, and I think we've also got to, as an industry, and I don't mean to, to just keep griping, but I think we've got to be better about this kind of race to the bottom uh, mm -hmm. in terms of fees. But that also means um, keeping people in the industry and keeping them engaged 
and I think research is an, an also an excellent talent attractor and a talent engagement tool. Um, keep people engaged in, in um, curious endeavors. You know, I, th- yep. I think that we can't use this as an opportunity to say like, let's double down on productivity necessarily, but let's double down on um, training. Let's double down on sending people back to school. Um, and let's double down on creating like the most diverse teams that we can. Oh yeah. I think, you know, the hiring practices are, are probably already changing to some degree, like, you know, in the design technology world, I do a lot with like the visual programming tools and stuff that are out there. And I think you're seeing more and more arch- maybe the bigger architects that are considering if they haven't already, like, Oh, I need a coder. I need someone that could do, you know, a computer science degree. Now it's like, hey, I need somebody with a research background. Um, and so not only just diversity in the, um, I, I think we'll see diversity in thought, or I hope to see more diversity in thought for a lot of these firms is they realize that it's pretty, pretty critical um, to yeah. have that team. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that is, I think, great and good. But I think one of the major challenges that presents is, um, again, kind of a training opportunity is our are our managers um, and C-suite um, ready for that? Um, how do they how do they run a team of architects um, and coders in the same space? You know, I think that's uh, another kind of maybe sea change coming is that we're going to need to understand how do we structure our fees? How do we run projects differently now that we have um, very different types of people working together with different work styles and different expectations? Uh, and then throw on that we now need to be remote permanently and all those extra yeah. challenges that we're already dealing with. It kind of just lends itself to the the research process, right? You're, you're going to work with people that know a thousand percent more about something than you do and vice versa. Um, and it's about bringing that together and, and something that's going to develop a, a solution. Well, and sometimes those are where the, the best conversations happen because I've been in meetings where I know nothing about what's being talked about. And then as a result, I'll ask what is probably one of the dumber questions and something you as the expert probably glazed over and just, you know, went on your way. Um, And some of those like having that expert and then on, it really pulls out some really great stuff. Thanks for listening to the AEC Disruptors podcast. Enjoyed this episode? Leave us a rating or review while sharing with your friends and coworkers. I'd love to hear from you. Send me a LinkedIn request or follow our LinkedIn page and let me know if there's a topic you'd like to hear. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. The AEC Disruptors is directed by Christopher Riddell, produced by Todd Wyant, edited by Eric Daniel, and co-hosted by Jackson Sensat. The AEC Disruptors is an applied software production, copyright applied software 2020.